Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right. So on the docket for this morning, uh, divorce, remarriage, and just for good measure, a little bit about eunuchs. Good to see y'all. Uh, if you didn't have your coffee this morning, that should have woke you right up. Uh, if you are new to our church, uh, we have been walking through the book of Matthew in the Bible for a while now, just passage by passage, each and every verse of it. Uh, and when you do that, you occasionally come across some difficult passages. Uh, case in point, the past three weeks, I have taught on church discipline, forgiving people that wrong us. And now, divorce, which means next Sunday, I'm getting someone else to teach. (laughs) But today's passage largely revolves around this singular question. How should followers of Jesus think about divorce? And as I ask that, uh, I am very aware that for many people, church is probably the last place that they would prefer to have that discussion. Over the years, many churches have been guilty of heaping enormous amounts of guilt and shame and condemnation on those who have been through divorces. And then other churches, sometimes in an effort to avoid that mistake, have just chosen to not talk about divorce at all, which may be an easier solution, but certainly not a better one. So I hope you'll bear with me this morning as I seek to avoid either of those two ditches, and it is a narrow road in the middle. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I just want us to do our best to unearth what Jesus teaches in this passage about marriage, divorce, and then a bit about singleness at the very end. And as we do that, chances are some of it will be challenging to us. Some of it may be convicting to us. And and some of it might even be frustrating at first to us. But really, that's what we sign up for Anytime we open the scriptures together, right? We are probably going to be challenged, we're probably going to be convicted, and sometimes we're even going to be frustrated. But I firmly believe that in what the Spirit has to say through the words on these pages this morning, there is life to be found just like there always is. So what I'd love to do is start by praying together and then we'll hop into the passage. Father, thank you um, that you have sent your spirit to be among us this morning. God, thank you that he has life on offer for us. That in your scriptures, uh, even when they say things that are difficult, difficult to understand or difficult to practice, that there is life to be found. And so God, I pray that this morning, um, that all of us, regardless of our situation or station in life or whatever the case may be, God, I pray that all of us would be willing to listen before we decide that we don't like something, that we'd be willing to hear out perspectives that differ from our own. And God, that through that process for all of us, you would help us to see the glory and the beauty and the life that is available to us who follow you through your kingdom. We ask this in your name. We ask for your help. Amen. 
you got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, as I mentioned earlier, we've been walking through the book of Matthew together as a church, and in this section of the book specifically, Jesus is talking largely about relationships, how we relate to other followers of Jesus within this thing that Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That is Jesus' focus in this section of the book. So obviously, the relationship of marriage would be very important to that whole conversation about relationships in the kingdom. So today, Jesus gets into that. Let's dive straight in. Start with me in verse 1 of chapter 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So these two verses serve as a sort of brief interlude to the story that we're about to read. For the past little bit, the emphasis of Matthew's gospel had been largely on Jesus's teaching, his nuanced, sometimes complicated, often controversial teaching. But here, it's almost like Matthew wants to remind us that this is still Jesus, Even in the midst of all the controversy, this is still Jesus. Where Jesus goes, people follow, people get healed, people have their lives transformed by him for the better. That stuff is still happening amidst all the controversy. And then with that said, we get right back into the controversy. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every Reason. Now, there are a couple quick things that you need to know to fully understand this question from the Pharisees. First, the Pharisees existed in a highly patriarchal culture, meaning it was usually to your advantage to be a man, it was usually to your disadvantage to be a woman. That was especially true when it came to marriage and divorce in the ancient world. In general, a husband had the legal ability to terminate his marriage if he saw fit, and a wife, in general, did not have that same legal ability which is why this question is asked in the specific sort of gendered way that it is. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, you also need to know that there was a debate raging at the time in the first century about what constituted legitimate grounds for divorce among God's people. One camp insisted that the only justified reason for a divorce was adultery, marital unfaithfulness in the relationship. The other camp insisted that there were a multitude of legitimate reasons for divorce. One rabbi in the second camp said that if a wife did so much as burn her husband's dinner, he could divorce her over it. You will be surprised to find out that that rabbi was not in fact married. I know he sounds like a real catch. It's a shocker to all of us, but he was not married. But there was a lot of back and forth in this particular day and age about what constituted legitimate grounds for divorce. And the Pharisees apparently want Jesus to weigh in on this debate that was happening at the time. Or or maybe to put that more accurately, they want to trap Jesus into that debate so that they can discredit him by what he says. That's what's going on here. Now let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Verse six, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. So Jesus starts his response by asking the Pharisees if they've read their Bible. 
The reason that's funny is because the Pharisees were self-proclaimed Bible experts in their day. They likely had the first five books of it memorized, committed to heart. So Jesus asking them this question would be kind of like one of us going up to a tenured philosophy professor at the University of Tennessee and saying, have you ever heard of a guy named Aristotle? Like it's just a wildly insulting thing for Jesus to say. But then, to make it even more insulting, he's not asking them if they've read some obscure passage from the Old Testament. He actually asked them if they've read some concepts from essentially page one of their Bible. This is one of the reasons that the Pharisees did not like Jesus a lot of the time. But the passages that Jesus references are specifically from Genesis chapters one and chapter two. They are without a doubt the most foundational passages in all of the scriptures for talking about marriage. But before we talk about what those passages say specifically, I want, I want to make sure you see why Jesus is bringing them up at this point in the conversation. The Pharisees ask Jesus a question about divorce, and he responds with a theology of marriage. Do you see what he's doing here? Jesus is saying, before we talk about divorce at all, we have to have a conversation about marriage. If you don't understand what marriage is and what it's for, there's no way that you're going to understand and know what does and does not constitute grounds for ending a marriage. We have to start there. Jesus wants to reset the Pharisees on an understanding of what marriage is and what it's for according to the scriptures. Now, I would argue that we in the 21st century could also benefit from a reset on what marriage is. If I were to just sum up in a word what most people, honestly, outside and inside the church, think marriage is for, it would be this word, happiness. Happiness. A majority of people believe that marriage is primarily about happiness. Now, maybe that happiness comes in the form of emotional or physical intimacy within a marriage. Maybe it comes in the form of financial stability or security that comes from being married. Maybe it's the ability to, to start or to have a family through marriage. Maybe it's just the happiness that comes from not feeling alone. Or maybe it's some combination of all of those. But the perspective I hear communicated from people more than any other perspective is that marriage is an arrangement by which we obtain lifelong happiness in the form of a spouse. Now, I want to be very clear as I say that, in no way am I saying that it is wrong to want happiness out of your marriage. Marriage can and should make us happy at times. Sometimes tremendously happy. But I am saying that it's wrong for a follower of Jesus to think that happiness is the purpose of marriage. It's wrong to think that that's the one thing that God created marriage to accomplish. And if you go into marriage thinking that it is the purpose, I am telling you that you will set yourself up to be perpetually frustrated and disappointed at marriage. Because marriage will make you happy but that's not what marriage is about at its core. That's not the purpose of marriage. It's a byproduct of a healthy marriage. So what is marriage's purpose? That's what verses five and six in our passage are about. So the big idea there is that marriage is about a man 
leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife. So that word united there in the Greek comes from the Greek word meaning glue. Marriage is when a man leaves his family of origin, at least figuratively speaking, and adheres himself to his wife. That idea is reinforced by this language about two becoming one flesh. Marriage is when two separate people come together as one new entity. And doing that requires a certain level of commitment. It requires a certain level of selflessness. It requires, on some level, a voluntary loss of some autonomy in order to join your life to another human being. But the scriptures teach us that when we do that, when we enter into a relationship like that, marriage becomes one particular way that we put on display to each other and to the world what God is like. That's the purpose of marriage. Marriage is a means by which men and women image God to the world around them. So the purpose of marriage is so much deeper and so much more profound than happiness. The purpose of marriage is the kingdom of God. It's about putting that kingdom on display for the world. So Jesus says, if marriage is about God bringing people together for that purpose, then, quote, what God joins together, we shouldn't be eager to separate, which is an answer to the Pharisees' question, kind of, but they have a retort for it. They have a comeback. Pick it back up with me in verse 7 of our passage. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So the Pharisees think that they have Jesus on the ropes here. They think they have Jesus exactly where they want him. If what you're saying is true, they say to Jesus, then why did Moses in the Old Testament command men to give their wife a certificate of divorce? They think they've finally exposed Jesus with this question as contradicting the Hebrew scriptures. He's a heretic. Checkmate, Jesus. We got you. Nobody should listen to you. You're contradicting the Bible. But as is often the case with legalistic Bible folks, the verse that they're citing for their argument doesn't quite do what they want it to do. It doesn't quite say what they think that it says. So let me just show you what I mean. Look on the screen with me at the passage in question. This is the passage that the Pharisees are referencing. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse one. It says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and then the passage goes on with instruction from there. But we don't even have to go any further in the passage, because we've actually already seen the most important part. The most important part to understanding what the passage is about, and the part that the Pharisees missed in how they read it. It's actually the very first word in the whole passage. It's the word if. If, I would argue, is a massively important word to what is being said in Deuteronomy. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. Uh, let's say, let's imagine that I say the following sentence to my son, Wit. I say, Wit, if you knock over your sister while y'all are playing together, you must go check on her to make sure she's okay before you keep playing, which is actually a very frequent instruction given in the Bateman household, <laughs> quite often, in fact, almost daily. Let's say that I say that to Whit. Now, 
is that the same thing as me saying to him that I really hope he knocks over his sister? Am I expressing a desire to wit that he would regularly harm his sister in the course of day-to-day life? Not at all, right? I'm simply acknowledging that we live in a world where unfortunately he may occasionally knock her over and I'm insisting that given that we live in that sort of world, we look for ways to minimize the damage that our actions cause. That's the point. Okay, that's actually not very far from what's going on with this verse in Deuteronomy, at least conceptually speaking. Deuteronomy 24 was not written for the purpose of telling anyone to divorce their wife. It was written simply to acknowledge that they lived in a world where divorces happen, and given that reality, to try and minimize the damage that those divorces have on people, namely the impact it has on the woman who is being divorced which is exactly what Jesus means when he responds to the Pharisees in verse eight. Take a look with me there. Jesus replied, Moses permitted, notice, not commanded, like they said. Jesus Jesus says they permitted, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. So Jesus says, Moses didn't command you to do any of this. Not the way you're reading it. Moses acknowledged that you would because of your hard hearts, because of your sinful hearts, and then he gave you instructions on how to minimize the negative impact that that divorce would have. But Jesus says it was not that way from the beginning. Not at all. That's not how God designed marriage to work in Genesis 1 and 2. To put that a slightly different way for our context today, divorce is never God's plan A. It's never God's plan A. And I don't really think I have to tell anybody that, especially anybody who has been through a divorce or has had someone close to them go through one. I think we're actually all on the same page there. Divorce is never the optimal plan for two people. Rather, divorce exists because of the brokenness of the world that we live in. Somewhere in each relationship that experiences divorce, something has gone wrong that shouldn't have. Divorce exists because of the reality of sin in our world and the reality that sin can sometimes get really, really ugly, especially in the context of a marriage. And sometimes when other options have been exhausted, divorce becomes the only remaining way to minimize the damage that sin has on the people involved. Divorce is never the best plan, but sometimes it is the only plan that we have left. And that is precisely why the scriptures and why Jesus himself speaks so soberly about divorce. So with that all unpacked, Jesus finally gives his direct answer to the Pharisees' question. Take a look with me in verse 9 of the passage. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So let's unpack what Jesus says here. He says that any man who divorces his wife, except in the case of his wife being unfaithful to him, and then remarries, commits adultery when he remarries. That's what Jesus lays out here. Now remember, Jesus' view on marriage is straight out of Genesis, right? A man adhering himself to his wife and them becoming one flesh 
together, which means that any tearing apart of that bond simply for the purpose of marrying someone else is wrong in the eyes of God. And just doing the paperwork to make it official through a divorce does not make it right, Jesus says. It's still functionally adultery. Ending your marriage for frivolous reasons, just because you'd rather be married to someone else, is a sin against God and before your spouse. Now, at times, Christians and churches have taken this one teaching from Jesus and have treated it as if it's an all-encompassing theology of divorce and remarriage. As if this one verse is all that we need to judge the merit of every divorce and every remarriage that there is out there. The problem with that is that this isn't the only passage about divorce and remarriage in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually seems to give at least one more reason for divorce, if not multiple reasons, depending on how you read it. So the way I see it, that leaves us with two options. Either Paul contradicts Jesus, which creates much bigger problems for how we read the Bible, or Paul and Jesus are each speaking into something specific in what they say. Things that shape and influence and and help inform what they say and how they say it. To me, that second option, that they're each speaking into specific situations that we can learn from, that option makes way more sense in terms of how we read the Bible. Doesn't create unnecessary problems of Bible interpretation. So Jesus was speaking specifically in his passage to a type of dismissive and cavalier and and often chauvinist attitude towards marriage. He's speaking to situations where men saw themselves as possessing all of the decision-making power in marriage and divorce, a, a type of posture that made them the sole determiners of whether or not a marriage stayed intact. And so Jesus, speaking directly into that posture, says absolutely not. That's not how it should be. Marriage is not a casual relationship to be entered into lightly and to choose to opt out of whenever you feel so inclined. That's not what marriage is. It is a lifelong mutual partnership between two image bearers of God that should only be terminated when other options have been exhausted. That's Jesus's view of marriage and therefore of divorce. So... What would all of that have to say to us? I think it would say a few different things depending on the specifics of the situation. First, probably the most obvious application is that if you are a man or a woman here today who just wants a way out of your marriage because you'd rather be with someone else and not because a legitimate marriage-ending sort of wrong has occurred, I would advise you to heed Jesus' warning here if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Just wanting out of a marriage, according to Jesus, is not a sufficient reason for divorce. Not being happy or fully satisfied in your marriage is not a sufficient reason for divorce. And more than that, Jesus says that he actually considers it adultery for a follower of Jesus to take that approach to their marriage. That is approaching marriage in a way that actually fails to understand the gravity of what it is. Second, if you're here today and your spouse has been unfaithful to you, 
and especially if they show no signs of being genuinely repentant over it. Jesus seems to be saying that in that scenario, divorce is an option. In that instance, your spouse is actually the one who broke the bond of marriage, and a realistic option for you is to end the marriage. Now, notice that even then, Jesus does not say that you should get a divorce if that happens. He's simply saying it isn't inherently sinful to do so. So let's remember at this point that there is an entire book of the Bible, the book of Hosea, where God calls a man to pursue his wife even while she is serially unfaithful to him. And God sets that book forward as a sort of metaphor for his relationship with his people who are also serially unfaithful to him. So let's not automatically rule out a situation where the gospel is made evident by how we pursue our spouse, even in those unideal circumstances. But if having divorce on the table is helpful as an option for you, Jesus does seem to allow for that as a possibility. Third, let's say you're here this morning and you've been through a divorce already, but you didn't want out of your marriage at all. In fact, you would have much preferred to stay married, but your partner felt differently. And because they felt differently, they either pursued a divorce against your wishes or they left you with no option but a divorce. So they continually cheated on you. They abandoned you. They told you they didn't want to be married to you anymore. Or they made your marriage such a physically dangerous place to be that you could not safely stay in it even if you wanted to. If that's the hand that you were dealt, I don't think Jesus' pointed response to the Pharisees here is directed at you. That's a very different audience. In fact, there are, I don't think Jesus calls you an adulterer in that scenario. In fact, there are times in the Bible where Jesus comes across people who are adulterers and he still doesn't call them adulterers. Because when people have been chewed up and spit out by other people, Jesus does not condemn them. He brings hope, he brings healing, and he brings restoration. Now finally, let's say you were the partner who pursued a divorce for less than good reasons in the past. It's already happened. Let's say you got a divorce simply because you did not want to be married to that other person any longer. You didn't want to be married in general any longer. But let's say that then, later on, through a teaching like this one, or through reading the scriptures on your own, or just Holy Spirit conviction, let's say that God brings to your attention that that was the wrong way to go about it. That that was not a well-motivated divorce. Let, let's say that you feel convicted or even grieved that you went through with that divorce in the past, and you're realizing that according to Jesus in this passage, getting remarried after that would make you guilty of adultery. If that is you, and I would say especially if you feel a great deal of shame or guilt over that, I would just remind you of the message at the very core of our faith, and that's the gospel. There is a passage, actually, in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul is reminding a church about that gospel message. And in doing so, he first gives a very long list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And included in that list are, quote, the sexually immoral and, quote, adulterers. 
But after giving that list, he says to the Corinthians, he turns to them and says, but such were some of you. Such were some of you. Past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, even if you did the thing in regards to divorce that Jesus specifically says not to do, that does not put you beyond the washing, saving, justifying work of Jesus. It does not put you beyond that. Listen, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I get that some churches have treated it like it is. It's not. A a divorce, even an ill-motivated and poorly motivated one, does not put you beyond the redemptive work of Jesus. So the hope for all of us, married, single, divorcees, divorcers, and anyone else is a man on a cross who says your sin is done, atoned for, and completed, and you don't have to do anything else. So when you feel shame, when we feel shame, that is where we go. That is what we cling to. Such were some of us, but we've been washed. We've been justified. We've been sanctified by Jesus. So that is my attempt to speak to a number of different scenarios regarding divorce and remarriage with truth from the scriptures. Now, I realize that even with all of that, there are probably situations and scenarios where I have not answered every single question that you have regarding marriage, divorce, remarriage, any of that. And I think that's probably especially true if that is part of your story or or the story of someone close to you or the story of someone in your life group. It's even possible that in the things I just said, I might have even raised more questions in your mind on the topic. That's very understandable. So here's what we're gonna do. This week, actually first thing tomorrow morning, I think, we're going to put out a podcast where Jeff and I, Jeff's another one of our pastors, where we go into a little more detail on everything that the Bible teaches as a whole on these topics, and then try to speak into some specific situations and questions that this passage doesn't really claim to go into. So if that's something that would be helpful to you or helpful to you as you walk with people in your life group, uh, be looking for it on our website. It'll be on all of our podcast platforms. All of that should be up, like I said, first thing tomorrow morning. But for the last bit of our time this morning, I, I want us to keep moving through the passage. I want us to finish it out because after Jesus unpacks all of that regarding marriage and divorce and remarriage, the disciples actually have some immediate thoughts that flow out of that. So take a look with me back in verse 10 of the passage. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. So the disciples hear Jesus is teaching on marriage and divorce, and they respond a little bit incredulously, right? They say, uh, if, if that's how marriage and, and divorce and remarriage works, Jesus, then I'd rather just stay single. If if I can't divorce my wife for any reason I want, I don't want to get married. Oops, (laughs) they said the quiet part out loud, (laughs) right? The, The disciples apparently have a little bit of an aversion to commitment and maybe a little bit of sexism just sprinkled in. They are ready to avoid marriage altogether if marriage means being potentially stuck in a relationship that they don't like. But before we cast too much judgment on the disciples for that attitude, let's look in the mirror for a second. 
Any amount of research will tell you that marriage rates in the U.S. are currently at an all-time low and are forecasted to continue dropping indefinitely. People are resisting getting married until much later in life, opting for things like cohabitation instead. And more and more, people are choosing not to get married at all, like ever. And if you just do a broad survey of the reasons people list for not pursuing marriage, guess what is at the very top of the list? An aversion to commitment. People don't want to be stuck in a marriage they don't like, so they'd rather just not enter into a relationship like that in the first place. We have largely responded as a society right in line with the disciples' sentiment here. If this is the case with marriage, Jesus, I'd rather just not get married. So what is Jesus' take on this response from the disciples? Look back with me in verse 11. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, you're right, disciples. Some people shouldn't get married, but not for the reason you just gave. Not for that reason. Not simply to avoid commitment. That's not the reason to stay single. For a different reason. Now, Jesus is about to give us that different reason, but he has to do it sort of in a roundabout way. So let's read it, and then we'll unpack it. Verse 12. For there are eunuchs, this is interesting, where's he going with this, right? There are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay, here's what's going on. The disciples were first century Jewish men, which meant they didn't really have a category in their minds for deliberate, chosen, lifelong singleness. Virtually every man of marrying age in their society was in fact married, except that is for eunuchs. Eunuchs, if you're unfamiliar, were essentially, I'll try to keep this PG, uh, just in case we have younger people in the room. Uh, Eunuchs, if you're unfamiliar, were essentially male bodyguards to royal women. So if a king had a wife, or more than often, more often than not, it was multiple wives, he would appoint men to protect her, to make sure no one harmed her. But then to ensure that those men could be trusted around his wife, the king would have that man castrated. As bizarre as that sounds to us, it was actually a very common practice back in Jesus' day. That's what a eunuch was. So Jesus uses this existing category of a eunuch that people had to teach his disciples about deliberate, chosen singleness. So he says some eunuchs were, quote, made that way by others, i.e. that very unfortunate scenario that we just described. Some eunuchs were born that way, and this part is his point, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Translation, there are people who will choose lifelong celibate singleness for the purpose of displaying and furthering the kingdom of God. People who will opt to go without marriage and sexual intimacy for God's purposes. Jesus creates a category in his disciples' minds for God-honoring, God-glorifying, deliberate singleness. So notice the contrast between Jesus' attitude towards marriage and singleness and what is often the world's attitudes towards marriage and singleness. So some in our world 
would say that everyone should be married because being married is the best way to be happy. So your annoying aunt that asks you every Thanksgiving why you're not married yet, this is her view, okay? She thinks that the best possible way to be happy is to be married, and so everyone should be married because marriage equals happiness. And then others in our world would say, no, don't get married. Why would you ever get married? Because then you're tied down and you're trapped in a relationship that you may or may not like. Our world says be married so you can be happy or be single so you can be free. Those are the two views we have. But Jesus comes along and says, wait, both of those are extremely shallow reasons for marriage or for singleness. In Jesus' view, marriage and singleness are both honorable ways to live for the purpose of the kingdom. For a follower of Jesus, marriage means choosing to go without total freedom and autonomy for the purpose of the kingdom. And singleness means choosing to go without marital and sexual intimacy for the purpose of the kingdom. There are ways that a married person can put the kingdom of God on display that a single person can't, and there are ways that a single person can put God on display that a married person can't. So the kingdom of God actually needs both. Jesus sees both marriage and singleness as ways of displaying the kingdom of God to the world around you. So Jesus corrects the marriage as happiness narrative, and he corrects the singleness as freedom narrative, all in one fell swoop, and he resets everyone on kingdom purposes. What does it look like to image the kingdom of God to the world around us? That's the question that we ask as followers of Jesus in every situation. So that's our passage. You guys feel good about it? Awful tense in here this morning. (laughs) We can talk about later. It's fine. We're, We're a church family. We can talk through this together. That's our passage. So before we're done, and thank you guys for hanging in there, um, I don't know how all of this hits you today. Um, I can tell you where it hits me. It convicts me as a married person about how much of my frustration in my marriage is because I'm looking to marriage to be something it actually wasn't designed to do, Uh, rather than seeing it as a means to put God on display. So when I grow angry or resentful at Anna, I think I need to stop and ask myself, am I angry because she's legitimately doing something wrong that is worthy of anger? Or am I angry primarily because her actions are making me less than optimally happy? And in those moments, I think I need to remember, I need to reset on the purpose of marriage. That the primary purpose of marriage is not my happiness. The purpose of marriage is to hold fast to my wife and for us to together put on display to the world what God is like and to each other what God is like. Through the successes and the failures, through the joys and the frustrations, good times and bad, all of that. That is the purpose of marriage. If you are here this morning and you are single, but you want to be married. I think it's worth asking yourself, why do I want to be married? Do I want to be married primarily because it's an opportunity to put God on display to the world around me? 
Or do I primarily want to be married because I think it will deliver me more happiness than I currently have? And if it's the latter, that's the leading motivation. I think I would just ask you if you might be setting yourself up for frustration or disappointment in an eventual marriage by thinking that that is the goal of marriage. Maybe there's an opportunity there to let the Spirit of God mold and shape your view of marriage so that you're not looking to it for something that it actually wasn't designed to give you at its core. And maybe that even helps you understand marriage better before entering into it one day if that's what the Lord has for you. If you're in the room and you're single and you really don't want to be married, like ever, I think still the question for you is why? Is it because that's how you feel like you can best put God on display to the world? Or is it just because you desire autonomy above all else? Is it because you can't imagine yielding aspects of your life to another human being? Is it possible that by having an aversion to marriage, you're actually missing out on a sanctifying work that God may want to do in you? Maybe there's room there for the spirit to work. And then finally, if you're here this morning and your story has been at all impacted by divorce or remarriage, I pray this has been helpful to you. I hope you hear Jesus' heart in everything that he says on this topic. He is not intending to condemn. He's not intending to shame. He's intending to protect and to instruct. He's trying to lead us into a deeper understanding of what marriage is and what marriage is for. And that is what's best for all of us, regardless of our marital So finally, for all of us in the room, I hope we get, I hope we realize that our acceptance before God does not come from a perfect understanding or attitude towards singleness, marriage, divorce, remarriage, any of that. That's not where our standing before God comes from. That's not where our acceptance comes from. Our acceptance before God comes from the cross and resurrection of Jesus and allowing him to wash and to sanctify and to justify each and every one of us, allowing him to cleanse us of anything in us that is not like him and to lead us into who he designed us to be, regardless of what season of life that is. And as we do that, as we allow him to do that, we know that his grace will be enough to sustain us through any season, any difficulty, any hardship, any frustrations that we might have along the way. I hope that is the message that we hear above all else. Let me pray for us. Father, your... Your teachings are not always easy. They're not always what we want to hear in our flesh. But God, as followers of Jesus, we we do gather and we say, 
whatever you want to say is what needs to be said. And so God, if there are things that that I've said and attempting to unpack all of that that are not of you, that don't reflect your heart for any of this, I pray that they would be forgotten. But God, if there's things that we've said this morning that, that very much do reflect your heart for us, if there are things that need to convict and they need to make us think and they need to make us process and they need to make us wrestle, God, I pray that we would be willing to let your scriptures do that by your spirit. That you would give us open hearts and not closed ones. God, that we wouldn't assume that our thoughts are your thoughts, but that we would understand that your, your thoughts are much higher than ours. And that maybe you see things from an angle that we just don't see them clearly from. And so God, my prayer is that whatever needs to wash over us this morning, whether it's words of challenge or words of comfort, that we would allow them to do that. That we wouldn't resist, that we wouldn't fight, that we wouldn't argue, but that we would lay our hearts before you and that we would trust you with them. So God, however that needs to happen, whatever you need to speak, however we need to respond, We ask that that would happen this morning. It's in your name we pray.